launch of my webinars is less than a month away. My first webinar will be August 13th, and the topic is Intro to Aspects. We're going to be going over the five major aspects, what they mean, how to interpret them, we'll explore orbs, and the concept of applying and separating. If you're wanting to deepen your understanding of one of the core parts of astrology, consider coming to class. Reserve your spot in class at my website, moonmattersastrology.com, and also check out other ways you can support me and the podcast. I have slots open for astrological consultations, as well as some poems and tarot readings back in stock. You can find it all at moonmattersastrology.com. As always, thank you for listening and for your support. Last week, we went on a tangent. We took a tangent with Mark Matusik, and we talked about shadow work. But now let's get back on track because I am ready to wrap up this Love, Sex, and Eros series. Throughout the Love, Sex, and Eros series, we looked at three of the big players in Sinistry. We explored the myth of Eros and Psyche and how their story influences the way their significations come about. Eros is our passion, what we lust after, and how we keep our divine spark alive and well. Psyche is closely linked to our hero's journey and can indicate what we need in order to transform ourselves time and time again. Psyche also tells us how our partners will change us and the impact that we'll leave on them. We also went through the myth of Juno. Juno is the queen of commitment and one of the biggest all-around sinistry placements. She tells us our commitment style, what we crave in relationships at a bare minimum, and she's also just, she's our shadow side when we aren't feeling held and supported by our partner. She rivals Venus when it comes to love significations, but honestly, both are important to understanding sinistry in its entirety. Thank you for sticking with me as we got through the series. I know it was long and I was personally going through my own psyche transformation moment in the midst of it. I'm glad to be out on the other side of it because today we're going to be talking about sinistry as a whole. So what is sinistry? The definition of sinistry as Google tells it is the comparison between the horoscopes of two or more people in order to determine their likely compatibility and relationship which um, I'm pretty down with that definition. I would only add to it that we can have synastry with anything. We can have synastry with our jobs, uh, business we start, and even our wedding date. The energy imbued into a pursuit or event acts similar to the energy that we have in our charts. So you can have synastry with just about anything and it kind of acts as a permanent transit. So your wedding date, the date you started your business, things like that, they act as a permanent transit as long as the thing is, I guess, still around and happening. And if you're into doing an electional chart, you should always check the synastry between you and the event so you can understand what that permanent transit of that event is like. I recently eloped and I picked the electional chart for the day of the elopement. And I'll be using that chart as one of the examples today. So a little bit of synastry and electional astrology when we get to that part. But in general, we are going to be mostly talking about synastry today. But elections, you have synastry with your elections. So I think it's important to kind of bring that part in and talk about that a little bit too. So yeah, synastry is the art of overlapping two or more charts together and seeing how all the placements stack up. No one's synastry will be absolutely perfect or conflict-free. That's just not how life works. And if it did, there would be no friction, no sparks, no inciting incidences to move the plot of our lives forward. 
We need to have a little friction with our partners because that's how we grow together as people. That's how we problem solve. That's how we either grow together or I guess grow apart. It's we need friction. And that's another thing. The synastry I'll be talking about today is based around romantic relationships, but you can look at the synastry of friends, coworkers, bosses, parents, children, literally anyone or anything. You just adjust the planets and placements you put more emphasis on when you're doing the analysis. So if you're wanting to look at something between you and your boss, you might look at more money significations, money houses, other people's resources, as well as Mercury. But if you're looking at relationships industry, obviously you're going to want to focus on Venus, Juno. So you'll change the placement that you're looking at depending on who the synastry is with or what the synastry is with. And with that said, regardless of relationship type, there's definitely charts that just won't mesh because there's people that just don't mesh. Think of two people who are really attracted to each other, but it's always super messy and they bring out the worst in each other. We can see that when we look at the synastry. If the benefics or the moon are inundated with dynamic aspects with the malefics, then we can see this harshness that's added to the relationship. That's more than just a little friction. Because again, we want a little friction, but when the moon and the benefics are really bogged down by dynamic aspects with the malefics, that's when we see where it's like, oh, that's not friction. That might just be a little bad for each other. You might just not go well together. When I evaluate charts for romantic synastry, I take the entire chart into consideration. But before I look at a chart in its entirety, there's a few placements I look to first. Just like when you're wanting to look for intellect or writing ability, you'd look to Mercury or even Venus if it's creative writing. There's a core group of placements you want to look at to assess romantic relationship dynamics. Once I assess the core group, I'll take a look at the chart as a whole because that's just good practice. But the following placements are the heavy hitters when it comes to relationships and commitment. We have the moon, Venus, Eros, Psyche, Saturn, and Juno. The moon and Venus are the obvious ones, I think. They're benefic. They want harmony. They're soft and sweet, and they want flowy goodness all around. Venus traditionally has a signification of partnership and love, and the moon traditionally signifies emotions and deep connections. And those are all very important aspects of a relationship. So the moon and Venus, very important to relationships. Oftentimes, though, love isn't enough. Real life settles in and we need other parts of our relationship drive to kick in and help us get through the day-to-day grind of being human, as well as when crisis strikes. Life isn't perfect and neither are relationships, so we need to find placements that carry us through the hard times, and that's where Juno and Saturn come in, but I think especially Saturn, which is surprising for some people. Juno will tell us about longevity in general and what the person is willing to endure and also what they aren't willing to endure. Juno is great at assessing commitment style when it's solo and even better at showing marriage dynamics when it's used in synastry. It's the ultimate marriage placement because it's the marriage asteroid. Having harmonic aspects with your partner's Juno is a strong indication of loyalty and unwavering commitment, but that doesn't always mean that it's a healthy relationship dynamic. It just means commitment to it. Remember the myth of Hera and, uh, or just the myth of Juno. Hera would be, you know, her other name. But Hera and Zeus, their relationship wasn't that great. It wasn't good. The dynamic was a little off, to say the least. So 
you could have that kind of relationship and still have commitment. So just because you see a junior that is well-placed or very committed doesn't mean the relationship is healthy, but it is a really good indicator that it has staying power. Saturn might seem like an oddball placement to look at for love, but it's really, really not. If you're wanting something that has staying power and can endure any storm, then you want a well-placed Saturn in your synastry. And well-placed means different things for different people. For instance, Saturn in the fifth house could sound like a bit of a drag, but if you're looking for commitment and monogamy and strict passion, then this placement isn't so bad. Saturn needs to be involved in a healthy way if the synastry is going to indicate longevity. We don't call people our rocks for no reason. Something as simple as having Venus in a harmonic aspect with Saturn could bring about the commitment dynamic. It could bring about having a seriousness to your love and romance with a person. I personally really like seeing Saturn in the fifth house or the seventh house for synastry between two people who want monogamy or traditional marriage. Saturn can uphold those values well and will give you the till death do you part signification all day long. But not everyone wants that type of till death relationship though. Sometimes people want something more casual or they take a long time to settle down. The spark of Eros can be very strong in some people, and depending on what Eros is like in our charts can influence our attraction and passion style. Eros is a fun placement to look at because it can feel so kind of bad, in a, but in a good way. When I see someone's Eros, it's like what they like in the bedroom is just laid bare. It exposes their sensual nature and the things that turn them on. It's a crucial part of synastry because it can tell us what we find attractive in, ge- in general, but also what about our partners we find attractive and vice versa, what they find attractive about us. Our Eros placement can help us keep the spark alive and allow us to reignite passion in a relationship after many, many moons of being together. I'm sure you've seen in movies or, you know, you've just heard people say, I used to be attracted to this about you and now you don't do that anymore. This was the thing that attracted me to you and and that went away. So now I'm not attracted to you anymore. And that's their Eros talking. Wherever your partner's Eros is in your chart, however it lines up synastry wise, that's the thing they find sexy about you. So if you're ever trying to reignite the spark in your relationship, Look to Eros, look to where Eros falls in your chart and where it falls in your partners and just see like, hmm, what was it that, that lit our, our, our fire together and see if you're still cultivating that or not. Psyche is the last of the big synastry placements I look at before taking the whole chart into consideration. And Psyche is awesome, truly awesome. Whether you stay together or not, whether the endeavor is short-lived or lasts your entire life, it does not matter. Psyche has something to say. When we look at Psyche and synastry, we're looking at how we're changed by the person, place, or event, and in turn, how we've left our mark on them or it as well. My Psyche is in my husband's 12th house. Before we got together and at the beginning of us getting together, I found out he was an alcoholic and struggled with generational addiction patterns. Through much compassion, conversation, and shadow work, we've explored his 12th house addictions and he's now almost a year sober. Our relationship has been one of shadow transformation for him and for me as well. He feels my psyche in his 12th house by continuing his journey with sobriety 
and allowing himself to be freed from generational cycles. I also have my Mars in his 12th house, so that kind of adds to him being able to sever ties with those addictions and traumas. Psyche is a really cool placement that allows us to see our influence on others. I almost look at it like the light we put out into the world, as long as we're acting out of light, that is. If we're acting from a place of shadow, it could potentially just emit more shadows onto the partner, which could still transform them, just not in such a nice way. All right, so we know about the key players in Sinistry as far as planets and placements, but are there more important houses in Sinistry? Well, yes and no. Obviously, the fifth house and the seventh house are big relationship houses. They deal with sex, passion, and close committed relationships. So when I see Sinistry that involves them, it's always something to note. But really, all houses are important. Every relationship is so different, and the houses are the areas of our lives. What's important in your relationship is probably totally different from mine. What you value is probably totally different from me. So which houses are most important really tend to line up with the values of the people involved, and that'll be reflected in their natal placements in general. I will say that when I see ascendant and midheaven action in Sinistry, that usually indicates an important connection or heightened energy. So when I get to looking at aspects between charts, I like to look at the Sinistry surrounding the angles of the chart just because they're so foundational. And I have some examples that we'll get to at the end that there is one where the angles are involved. But fifth house, seventh house, very important. And then obviously angular houses and the angles in general are also very important. Now let's go over some of the practical ways to use Sinistry and also some tips and tricks for getting comfortable with looking at two charts at once or what's called a bi-wheel. When you overlay two charts, the inner ring is the ring that guides the ascendant-descendant horizon line. So if I'm a Libra rising and my husband is a Cancer rising, then when my chart is the inner ring, we'll see things from my Libra rising perspective. If he's the inner ring, then we'll see things from his cancer rising perspective. Aspects between charts won't change regardless of which chart is in the inner or outer position. If you have the synastry of your moon trine your partner's Venus, then you will have that aspect from both perspectives, just different houses. The only thing that changes when you switch the inner and outer positions is the vantage point of the aspect and the experience of the individual. If you're new to Sinistry, then I suggest always putting your chart as the inner ring. This lets you keep the rising descendant layout that's familiar to you. But it's also the easiest way to view Sinistry because when we're the inner ring, that's our vantage point. We're seeing things from our perspective. And I think we understand our feelings usually a lot better than other people's. We don't want to speak for other people unless I guess we're an astrologer and trying to interpret things for them. But you do, I think, learn best when you relate things back to self first. It's easier to see it and understand it. When we want to know how a person, place, or event is going to interact with us, we always put ourselves as the inner ring of the bi-wheel. The outer ring then holds all the placements of the person, place, or event and shows us where they fall within our chart. Since houses indicate the area of our lives, we can see at a glance where someone might be more restrictive or rigid towards us via where their Saturn falls in our chart. Or we can see where it is well feel held and supported via their moon in our chart. 
As with any astrological technique, the mitigating factors always play a part in the interpretation. But simply from glancing at where the planets are in the houses of a bi-wheel can give you a rough idea of the energy. We further fine-tune our experience with a person, place, or event by looking at the aspects between where their natal planets fall on our chart and what aspects they create with our natal planets. Conjunctions are a big one here simply because they're so glaring. When we have conjunction energy and synastry, it's a very loud conversation happening between two charts. All of the typical aspect rules apply. The tighter the orb, the louder and stronger the conversation. I typically start with an orb of two degrees, see who's talking, and then branch out to a max of four to five degrees to catch the side conversations happening. This is where I start seeing the real dynamics of synastry between two charts kind of start to take form. I'm also looking at the angles of the chart, like I mentioned earlier, just to see if the synastry indicates anything having to do with influencing or changing the backbone of a person, the structure of the chart itself. Once we gather everything, we can put it all together and start forming the story of the bi-wheel. How do these two charts speak to one another? Do they quarrel? Is it all passion and no longevity? Or is there a strong foundation with no spark? What do these two charts need to learn from each other in order to mesh more harmoniously? There's so many questions that synastry can help answer. And while synastry shows us how we relate to another person, place, or event, I honestly think it reveals more about ourselves than anything else. Some of the patrons in the Discord were kind enough to let me use their synastry with their partners as examples. I have four example charts in total, and you can find links to the pictures of them in the show notes if you're a visual learner and want to kind of follow along that way. All of the chart info has been removed, so it's literally just example one, two, three, four, etc. For the first three charts, I picked out the most glaring aspect, most of which are conjunctions simply for ease of the eye and for those of you not going to be looking at the visuals. The last chart is the election for my elopement. So we'll go over why I picked that chart for a wedding and the factors that go into picking something like that. I hope that this is also a good uh, example of how you can pick an election for a wedding date because I know some people when they're picking a wedding venue maybe it's not an elopement picking for an elopement and a wedding day are actually kind of different you're looking at two different things but even if you're just having a venue and there's a couple of different dates you can choose from and you want which one will be more astrologically auspicious for you this might help you with that now let's look at example one so the biggest standout thing for this example is that the partner's psyche is conjunct the native's Juno in the ninth house. There are other things like the partner's moon in the fourth house and they have Venus and Saturn in the seventh house. It's a really, really, I'll say, nice chart for synastry. The synastry of these two people is very, very strong. But when I look at this chart, and even when I did a reading for this person, I remember saying that their Juno was probably very important just because it's decently conjunct the midheaven. And this, they did, they did indeed say that, but having then the partner's psyche conjunct Juno, that was really big. And there's going to be a transformation through marriage and commitment. The relationship in its entirety will be a transformational journey for the native. And like I said, I've done a few consultations with this person. And even when I'm just doing a general overview consultation, 
I really remember saying that marriage was going to be huge and transformational for them. And they agreed. And they said that they feel like they were meant to get married and they have this deep psychic soulmate connection with their partner. And if we look at the sign and house that this is happening in, this is happening in a ninth house Pisces. This is ninth house Pisces energy. So it's very soulmate. It's very flowy. There's a deep psychic connection between those two. And I fully believe that just based off of seeing that Psyche and Juno are conjunct between in in the Sinistry charts in the bi-wheel. And like I said, you also have the moon in the fourth house, which that creates a beautiful place to raise a family. And then you also have uh, Venus and Saturn in the seventh house. So I like seeing that. There's a nice strong foundation for these two to weather any storm. Example two. So uh, example two person, their partner's Eros is in Aquarius and it's exactly conjunct the native sun in the third house. We're talking exactly conjunct, same degree. This says the partner is attracted to the native in their entirety. Think of what the sun stands for. It's who you are at your core. It indicates attraction to the core being of who the native is. They don't need to be anything other than what and who they are in order to truly be desired by their partner, which isn't that such a beautiful thing to be able to be laid so bare and just be appreciated and loved by your partner. It gives me very natural vibes like sweatpants and no makeup kind of attraction. The native of the chart elaborated for me a little bit and said that their partner is attracted to how they don't let them fall into unhealthy patterns and how they don't back down from talking about taboo topics. And this has a lot of third house energy, but especially third house Aquarius energy. They're attracted to how the partner communicates and how they explore intellectually, but also how they spearhead the routines and rituals for the couple and that they don't let them fall into ruts. The native also has a Gemini seventh house and the partner is a Gemini sun. So once again, more action between the seventh house and the the partner. The seventh house is very much the other and what we run into a lot. So when I see couples and they have that sinistry where there's at least one placement in the seventh house, I'm never surprised. I'm usually more surprised when I see people who don't have placements of their long-term committed partner in the seventh house. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what else is going on that kind of brought them together because the seventh house is very much that committed marriage type house. So we, and we just run into those people a lot. That's just the the sign that we often gravitate towards or see a lot. So in these first two examples, there's, a, there's stuff going on in the seventh house. So not surprising. Example three, the partner's moon is conjunct the midheaven and the partner's Jupiter is conjunct the icy, which is the bottom of the heavens. And the partner's Saturn is conjunct the ascendant. The partner has a lot of influence surrounding what the native does with their public life and also has likely helped them stability-wise. They push them to achieve their dreams, but they also deeply ground them. This is a really, really great chart to showcase the influence the angles of the chart have when it comes to synastry. Having favorable and harmonic aspects with the angles indicates a partner that supports you on a fundamental level, a structural level. The angles are the bones of the chart, the framework. 
So having synastry that bolsters and supports the angles is like having a support beam added to your chart. So when I see the partner's Jupiter conjunct the IC, the bottom of the heavens, the bottom of the chart, literally the foundation of the chart, to me that says the partner has brought to goodness or had influence or expanded this person's ability to feel structurally sound and safe. In some way, they've helped expand their ideas of home life, their emotional baseline, or they've expanded their family somehow. Maybe you married into a big family, or maybe they helped you find stability in some way. Then having the partner's moon conjunct the the midheaven, the MC, the, the top of the heavens, the very top of the chart, that's like, wow. This person supports your endeavors. They are emotionally invested in seeing you rise to the top. They are emotionally invested in helping you achieve dreams. But then also you have that Saturn conjunct the Ascendant. For some people, depending on how things stack up, this could feel like a weight. So let's look at it in what we would perceive as maybe good and perceive as maybe less favorable. So something good could be that they help temper you. They help you discover kind of who you are and they hold you down. They don't hold you down in a bad way, but they definitely ground you. And then in a less favorable way, this relationship could maybe feel like, well, they stifle me a little bit, but maybe it's for my own good. Maybe I, maybe I flare up too much. I don't know. I don't, I didn't get to talk to this person much about the example, but I think that It could go either way. And sometimes our partners can feel like they stifle us a little bit and sometimes they can feel like they ground us. It might be a healthy grounding though. Example four, this will be a little different than the others because I'm not talking about synastry as much as I am electional astrology with synastry in mind. An electional chart can be good on paper, but if it doesn't mesh with you as an individual, then what's the point? So let's go through the basics of this elopement electional chart. Hopefully it inspires some of you babes out there to live your best life and go elope in the woods with your soulmate, but definitely consider consulting your astrologer first or just follow your gut. You know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. What do I know? Let's lay out what we see at a glance. We have Jupiter in the seventh house of relationships, Venus in the 10th house conjunct the midheaven, albeit a weak conjunction by my tight orb standard but a conjunction nonetheless. Psyche is exactly conjunct the ascendant. And then we have Juno and the moon exactly conjunct as well with the moon in domicile in Cancer. The sun is in its joy and the lunar phase was a balsamic moon. And that's just what we see at a glance. Remember for elections, we want to focus on three main things, the ruler of the ascendant, the moon, and the areas of the chart and planets pertaining to the subject matter at hand. So I wanted to be really cautious about the placements like Venus and Juno, and also the seventh house, anything relationship or commitment-based, really. The ruler of the ascendant is Mars because it has a Scorpio rising. While this typically wouldn't be my initial pick, I'm a Mars-ruled person, and so is my husband, and sometimes you have to give a little to get a lot when it comes to elections. Mars is seated in the 11th house and is really only talking to Saturn via an opposition. And typically, I'd like to see more benefic action happening with the ruler of the ascendant, but it made sense for the event. We eloped. We didn't have a bunch of people or invite people. 
or even tell people or have a celebration with a community or a friend group. Mars in the 11th suited the situation perfectly because we cut the list of people we told to practically no one, not even our families. So if you're listening, dad, I got married. Next, we have the moon, and the moon was the shining star of this election. What sealed the deal for this election was the moon was going to be conjunct Juno and Cancer. This was also happening during my husband's Juno return and was one degree away from being exact for him. The moon is free of harsh aspects with malefics and is actually in a sextile with Jupiter in the seventh house which brings more harmonious relationship goodness. Since the moon and Juno are exactly conjunct, that means Juno is also sextile Jupiter in the seventh house, which for a wedding day, we love to see it. In all, both benefics are in angular houses. The placements and houses that deal with relationships are well-situated. Saturn is in a weaker trine with Juno and the moon, so we have a little bit of that steadfast sturdiness being given. The election felt right in itself but also how it overlaid on our own natal charts was amazing too. You might be asking, so how did you pick this? Well, my babes, that takes hours of digging. I looked at my Astro software for about four hours straight, just moving charts and picking dates. I went three years into the future and I went three weeks into the future. This one pled its case and it came out on top. Elections take a lot of time and knowledge and it's a service that I plan to offer in the very near future. So be on the lookout for that soon. And also when I'm picking my elections, there is an element of gut feeling, I'll say. Yes, I take all my knowledge and what I know practically and I look at it and say that looks right. But just because it looks right, if it doesn't feel right, I don't use it. At the end of the day, what I feel usually almost always trumps what I know because what I feel is always right. So the fact that this one lined up feeling wise and intellectually on paper, I knew it was the one. We've come to the end of the road with the Love, Sex, and Arrow series. It's been so fun exploring with all of you and getting a chance to ramble on about my favorite thing in the world, love. I hope this series helps you discover more about yourself and your relationship needs. Never settle for less than you deserve or just the kind of relationship you truly want. Someone is out there who will love you the way you need, just as you are. If you want more astrological content before the next episode, consider signing up to become a patron of my work. I have exclusive blog content, monthly horoscopes, retrograde guides, and a Discord waiting for you to join. You could also leave a super cute review on Spotify or iTunes, which I would be eternally grateful for. Head on over to my website, check it all out, and thank you in advance for supporting me. I'll see all you babes later. Later.